Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 82, Clarifications. Some of the best questions we get here at Cheap Astronomy are the ones where you first need to set the context before you can even start answering the actual question. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Do we have the ability to measure the exact amount of heat arriving at the Earth from the Sun? Here on Earth, we often talk about light as being what we can see and heat as being what we can feel. But really, any wavelength of electromagnetic radiation can raise the temperature of something that absorbs it. A microwave oven heats things with high-amplitude radio waves, and even although high-frequency ionising radiation, like ultraviolet, X and gamma rays, tend to destroy the things that they radiate, they will still heat them up as they destroy them. So, in a nutshell, it's best just to talk about the sun's energy output. When all the electromagnetic wavelengths are taken together, the sun's surface emits about 63 million watts of energy per square metre. By the time that energy reaches Earth, after travelling 150 million kilometres and being spread out over that distance, the solar flux has diminished to around 1360 watts per square metre as it hits the Earth's upper atmosphere. That figure of 1360 watts per square metre is what's known as the solar constant, a measure of the solar flux that strikes one square metre of area, positioned exactly one astronomical unit from the Sun, and exactly perpendicular to the mean direction of solar radiation. So really, the solar constant is a standard measurement, and it's actually never constant, because the Sun's output always varies slightly over time. That variation is mostly about the Sun's fluctuating magnetic field, which underlies the solar cycle, where it takes around 11 years to move from a solar minimum, very few sunspots, to a solar maximum, lots of sunspots, and over that 11-year period, the strangely named solar constant increases by about 0.1%, and then drops by about that same proportion over the next 11 years. Beyond that... We know the sun's output is very slowly increasing. When it first ignited about 5 billion years ago, its luminosity was only 70% of what it is now. In another billion years from now, it will get another 6% more luminous, and that will be enough to evaporate the oceans and spell the end of Earth's habitability. Of course, all this has been determined on paper. It's a barely measurable change... We just know it's happening in the background, and that our doom is, very slowly, approaching. Down here on the surface, it does seem as though the sun's output fluctuates wildly, even though it doesn't. Of most importance to our experience of temperature on the surface is the axial tilt of the planet. For example, at 45 degrees latitude... The sun is in the sky for 15 and a half hours at one solstice and just eight and three quarter hours at the other solstice. 
which is a whopping 54% difference in day length. But that's not actually what matters. If day length was what mattered, then the hottest places on Earth would be the poles in their respective summer times when they receive 24 hours of daylight. What really matters is the angle of incidence of solar radiation. In those long polar summer days, the sun is barely above the horizon, so most of its straight-line radiation misses the Earth's surface. At the equator, despite there being only 12 hours of sunlight per day, the sun is straight overhead, meaning its radiation is always directed right at the Earth's surface, and so it's always hotter. Regardless of the angle of incidence, some of the solar energy that arrives at the Earth bounces off the outer atmosphere, some of it penetrates and then bounces off clouds, and some of it interacts with and is absorbed by the atmosphere, thereby heating the atmosphere. As a consequence of all that, the surface of the Earth only receives about half of the incoming solar radiation that hits the upper atmosphere, and even then, a lot of that is reflected back from the surface. But that energy, reflected back from the surface, still has to make it back out into space through the atmosphere. This is why all that stuff about greenhouse gases really matters. If you pump more CO2 into the atmosphere, it really does get hotter, and that is easily measurable. This is the middle bit. It is important to appreciate that complex systems take a bit of explaining, and opinions may differ on some of the finer points, but that doesn't mean the whole thing is totally inexplicable. There's just times when you need to go a bit further than a simple yes or no. Here's another example. Dear Cheap Astronomy, If we want a lunar orbiting space station, couldn't we just send the ISS there? Well, we could, but whether it would work is a whole different question. There is a fundamental principle that things are built for purpose. Of course, you can repurpose things, but that's only worthwhile if it makes practical and economic sense. The ISS, the International Space Station, was built for the purpose of orbiting Earth as a science laboratory. A lunar space station is more likely to work as a depot for lunar missions and potentially other space missions. It may still be a science laboratory, but that probably wouldn't be its primary purpose. A lot of the science on the ISS involves Earth observations. On Earth you have weather and oceans and geothermal activity, and we've got complex ecosystems not to mention a global civilization. So, while the moon is jolly interesting, which we keep discovering from our orbiting robotic spacecraft, even with a crewed station in orbit, we might not need to observe it with such intensity, nor in as many different ways, as we currently observe the Earth. It's also the case that a lunar orbiting space station will be well outside the Earth's magnetosphere, so it will need additional shielding to protect both the crew and its electronic systems from a level of cosmic ray bombardment that the ISS doesn't have to deal with. Furthermore, the ISS communication systems 
are only designed to handle two-way communication from low Earth orbit, which is essentially a distance of 400 kilometres rather than the 384,000 kilometres distance between the Earth and the Moon. And the ISS life support systems are based on receiving regular resupply, while a lunar station would also receive regular resupplies, the added distance, travel time and cost means those resupplies might not be as regular or reliable. So to manage that risk, you'd want a lunar station to have a lot more storage and more redundant systems, which means you have a lot more infrastructure that serves a smaller crew. And of course, if you're going to fly the ISS to the moon you lose an Earth-orbiting space station. There is talk of retiring the ISS in 2030, at least the US side of it, but that's mostly because it's just getting old and needs to be replaced. Given we've already said that a lunar space station is a riskier proposition, being exposed to higher intensity cosmic rays, and it's three days away for resupply or rescue, why add to that risk? by using ageing infrastructure that was never meant to operate in that environment anyway. And of course, getting the ISS to the moon is not all that straightforward. There are currently thrusters on board, capable of gently raising its orbit by tens of kilometres. If you want to get the ISS to the moon in a matter of days, you would need to apply a much greater amount of thrust, and applying thrust from one point puts stress on the entire structure if it is to move as one unit. It might work better if you distribute that thrust across the whole structure using multiple strapped-on engines. This might also assist in manoeuvring, remembering the Moon is only tilted 5 degrees from an Earth equatorial orbit, while the ISS is tilted 56 degrees. So you not only have to get it to the Moon, but also manage a complex orbital insertion manoeuvre once you're there. In any case, it would probably be best to use only gentle thrusts, meaning the trip would likely take months rather than days. And while maybe all this is technically feasible, there'd be a lot of testing required, using engines that may not be available off the shelf, and to keep those engines fuelled, you need to either carry the fuel with you, which means more mass and structural stress, or you need resupply craft to keep the ISS fueled up throughout its journey. The alternative to all that is to build on existing, or at least planned, lunar mission platforms. So a heavy-lifting rocket like the SLS or the Falcon Heavy could launch brand new modular components of a lunar station, getting them to lunar orbit in a matter of days, where they could be subsequently put together by a crew that has flown there with them. While we couldn't do this tomorrow, there are at least existing funded programs that have those specific objectives. You couldn't fly the ISS to the moon tomorrow either, and such a high-risk strategy would divert attention and resources away from what is currently the main game plan in getting back to the moon while the whole Artemis lunar program does still mostly look like a mission on paper, it is at least that much. This is the end bit. So, there you go. 
Some questions can't just be answered with a yes or no. Often it's a case of, well, technically yes, but here's a whole bunch of reasons why a better answer would be no. And talking through all those reasons why no is a better answer helps to explain why there's a much better solution to the problem at hand. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just won't take no for an answer, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll deal with all the technicalities for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nellick, Cheap Astronomy.